0: Folks, a very warm welcome to our latest Generation podcast, the podcast when we talk about ministry and mission from largely a Scottish perspective, but certainly not staying in Scotland, we will range all over the world. Uh, My guest today is one of the senior statesmen of the free church and uh, the Christian world, Fergus MacDonald, the Reverend Dr. Fergus MacDonald. Fergus, a very warm welcome to the Generation podcast. Thank you very much, David. It's good to be with you. Good, we are broadcasting, both of us, from quite a snowy um, Edinburgh. Now, many of our listeners will know who you are, but can you just sketch in a little bit about where you were raised and, and the context in which you grew up?
1: Yeah, I was raised in the village of Evanton in uh, just north of Dingwall, in the highlands of Scotland. Um, my father was the free church minister there, and uh, I was born there and lived there until I went to university at age 17. So that would be, uh, I regard that as my uh, homeland.
0: Yes, well, it's certainly given you a beautiful accent. Um, You've got a lovely voice. What what did you study at Edinburgh? Uh, I studied in in arts. I studied uh,
1: uh, psychology and, uh, and basically Hebrew. So these are my two special subjects in my arts degree.
0: Okay. Now, these days, I find that students tend to just do theology, theology, theology. Do you think there was an advantage in doing kind of arts or science first? Oh, yes,
1: absolutely. It used to be a principle, in fact, of the church, that one had to have a broad understanding of the world before one went into theology in depth. And I I think we miss that today. Um, And I think that helped helped me at least and helped my generation to uh, contextualize the message in the real world rather than in the bubble, the theological bubble, which uh, uh, we can often live in.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so you, you said that you grew up as son of a minister. I mean, in, in today's parlance, you're what's called a PK, a preacher's kid. Um, can you tell us some of the advantages and disadvantages of being a PK?
1: Well, I think it, looking back um, until I you know made a commitment to Christ at the age of 15, I felt it was all disadvantage. And um, uh, I mean, being the minister's son or one of the minister's sons in the community means that you are somehow regarded as different. Uh, and um, in fact, for a long time, I was determined I would never, ever be a minister uh, because of um, what I felt was a, a, a kind of discrimination uh, in the community among my own peers, not uh, among older people at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're so glad. I mean, you could have been a clinical psychologist or or something uh, like that. So now one thing that strikes me about your ministry, it is, you know, over 50, maybe even 60 years. um, It's incredibly varied. Can you just sketch in again for our listeners? um, What arenas did you minister in?
1: Yes, well, I began my ministry after I uh, finished in the Free Church College in the housing scheme, Glasgow Housing Scheme of Chapel, uh, where I was the first minister of the congregation there, and um, I was there for two years. I was I was appointed on a short term basis to get the the congregation up and going. The uh, what was then a Hope Street Free Church had uh, built a church, a very good church in Drumchapel and provided it. Uh, so for these two years, I was technically an assistant in Hope Street, and I found that very helpful because I learned the ropes of uh, of chairing a Kirk Session and a Deacon's Court without being thrown in at the deep end. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and from Drumchapel, um, uh, we went to Peru and ministered in Lima and in, in the St. Andrews Church, as it was, uh, would be translated in from Spanish. That was a Spanish-speaking church. And again, I was the first uh, full-time pastor of that church. And during my ministry, the, the church was was built up. We were there for between four and five years. Uh, and then when we returned to Scotland, uh, we, I got uh, an invitation to go to Cumbernauld again, an, a, a new church. Uh, this time the church was not built, uh, but uh, we were meeting in uh, schools and uh, mainly in schools. And um, at that particular point of time, you know, the church uh, centrally did provide buildings initially. And they provided us with uh, a very fine building in Cumbernauld. Uh, from Cumbernauld, I uh, joined the staff of the Scottish Bible Society, as it now is. It was then the National Bible Society of Scotland uh, and uh, was General Secretary for about 14 years, perhaps a little longer, uh, and then uh, became General Secretary of the United Bible Societies in the last uh, uh, four, 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 four to four five years of my working, uh, technically, uh, officially working life.
0: Well, I mean, that, that's incredible. Church planting, uh, global mission, working for a parachurch organisation, uh, phenomenal. Now, from Chapel and Cumbernauld were, what well, in today's parlance is called church planting, and in the 60s and it wasn't called, uh, I think it was called church extension. Yeah. Uh, church planting is a bit of a thing now, but you know, clearly it wasn't discovered in the last 10 years. Folk were doing it a long time ago. Can you maybe comment on the differences in church planting now and then and if you were to do it again, <coughs> would you do it a different way? Um, I think the main difference today is that the
1: financial arrangements are different in that when we established, we established few, relatively few uh, new churches. And so the denomination was able to undergird the venture financially. Uh, and that had advantages. It also had disadvantages. Um, now, the situation today is that if you plant a church, you, within five years, have got to become financially independent. And um, it is a much stronger focus on uh, the leader and the the uh, members of a church plant to raise their own support. And I think in many ways that, that can be quite healthy. And it does seem to be working uh, in the church plants, as far as I'm aware, and you know better about these than I do, David. But um, I think that particular focus is, is 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 helpful.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I went to Smithton, it was kind of last of the old school church extensions. Yeah. and uh, there was tremendous financial security, and you know, we had a nice building. The disadvantage is we could only do one of them every ten years. Yeah, as now we can we can spin spin them out. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. Now, Cumbernauld again. It was a new a new town then, or, or fairly new. How did you go about things? And and again, would you do it differently today? Um,
1: no, I think I would do it the same way today. Um, I mean, I, I, we had a good core, and uh, it was when. Uh, Members, Free Church members, decided to go to and transfer to live in Cumbernauld. They could do that relatively easily because it was an overspill uh, uh, new town from Glasgow. It was when they actually went there, um, with deliberately to help to plant the church, and that give it a, a raison d'être, uh, which it might have lacked if we just, you know, parachuted into the area. Um, I, from the very beginning, I uh, didn't make it, made it my uh, policy not to ask anyone in the group to do anything that I was not prepared to do myself. And I tried to lead from the front uh, in that sense. Um, I also felt it was very important to be a member of the wider community. And so, um, I mean, I, I joined the local community uh, clergy fraternal which was, which was very broad but it was very lively uh, and I did all I could. There were some things I couldn't do with the others but I did everything I could and I think they appreciated that and that gives me access into the, the political scene because there were areas where uh, the churches wanted to speak to the local town council or the development corporation as it was at that time and um, uh, I think that helped um, help the church to uh, have an interface with the local community. When I left Cumbernauld, the local town council gave me a lovely plaque uh, with the town's uh, a coat of arms on it as a kind of memento, uh, which
0: I still have in our living room here in Edinburgh. Great. Now, one of the things I've always noticed about you and admired, I mean, you you are very much, you know, free church. You're from a solid free church family. You're a Reformed confessional Presbyterian. But you, one of the hallmarks of your ministry is that you've been able to mix widely, uh, even with people you may not necessarily agree with. Yes, um, yeah. how, how have you found that in, in your ministry? And where did this Catholicity of spirit come from?
1: I think that from the earliest, my earliest years as a Christian, I was uh, conscious of people uh, who had a very wide vision. I think of Duncan Leach and Dingwall especially, uh, who had a a remarkable ministry outside in the free church, but also outside the free church, right across the spectrum. Um, So I think I was was, uh, inspired uh, by people like him, um, also, I, I, I early came to realize that although I, as you said, I'm a reformed, I'm first of all a Christian. And secondly, I'm an evangelical. And thirdly, I'm reformed. And at all of these levels, I can uh, relate to others uh, and not other Christians. And I think that, that, I think that has helped me. Whether it helps others or not, I don't know. But I think it it did help
0: me. Now, one of the great, I think, blessings of your life in ministry is that you've been able to travel widely in the UK and worldwide. Um, Can you tell us just maybe some of the figures who've impressed you, some of the churches that have impressed you, some kind of just, Things that you've come across that have given you a little bit of a, a wow. Yes, I think the
1: first of all, some of the people that I've met over the years, um, people who made a remarkable impact on their generation. Think of someone like Ralph Winter, the mycologist uh, in California, who is a remarkable man. I mean, um, in many ways. He was different from me, and I remember one on one occasion in a conference in Budapest when we were in the same small group, and no one else turned up, and he proceeded to give me a strong lecture on on uh, on that that the wine at the Lord's Supper must be grape juice, <laughs> and we need to revise biblical interpret biblical translations to make sure that wine is translated as grape juice. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, he was responsible for uh, introducing and and uh, publicizing the concept of people groups. Mm-hmm. And that has had a dramatic impact upon a uh, mission uh, since that happened in um, 1974, I think, at the Lausanne Congress. Um, so... Um, I, I, I really appreciated my interaction. Uh, I spent a day with him once in California, and he took me to the William Carey University, which he founded. And um, he was, a, remar- he was a, a, a remarkable man. I also think of uh, someone like Eugene Nida, uh, who, um, along with Bruce Metzger, whom I also met, uh, together they made a, a great impact upon Bible translation. Uh, Metzger, of course, uh, was uh, a textual critic uh, who helped produce the, the, you know, an eclectic text uh, of the New Testament, which nearly everybody follows today. Um, and um, uh, Nida uh, was keen on functional equivalence in translation, which all translations, just to a greater or lesser extent, uh, follow. Some, some much more than others. Um, and uh, I feel it was a privilege to know these people. I only met Bruce Metzger once, but I, I never forget what what Oswald Hoffman, who at that time was the preacher on the Lutheran Hour, which uh, we used to listen to as children on Radio Luxembourg, uh, one of the few stations one could reach outside the BBC. Uh, it was before Oswald Hoffman was, was the preacher. But... Uh, I remember later when I met Oswald Hoffman through the American Bible Society, he said that if the, an original uh, autograph of the New Testament was found, you would find BM's initials in the margin. Yeah,
0: that's a great line. <laughs> um,
1: so I think also of, the, of people like uh, uh, John Reed, who was an Anglican bishop in Sydney. Uh, he was on the Lausanne Committee with me And um, he had a very, very fine theological mind. And on the committee, I remember that the chairman would, if there was a theological problem, he would always ask John uh, to to analyze it and to define it. I think another person who I I greatly appreciate and still do is Leighton Ford, who's still alive, Billy Green's brother-in-law. He was the chairman of the Lausanne Committee when I first joined it. And he impressed me that, before we, we took a decision we always prayed mm-hmm. and it wasn't just a prayer at the beginning a prayer at the end we had elements of prayer you know right through and it's interesting that you know at least our presbytery does that today mm-hmm. and um, I, I I think that I learned a lot uh, and other people learned through that too so I, I think that uh, these particular people, when John Reed Um, he also wrote a biography of Marcus Lone uh, who had connections with the Free Church he was the Archbishop of of Sydney and he visited Peru when we were there and he preached for us and he visited us Um, he wrote a biography of Marcus Lone as I've said and it was interesting that uh, he did it in consultation with Marcus Lone on the understanding that it would not be published until after Marcus Lone had died which makes a lot of sense. Um, So
0: these are just some of the many people that I've met. What about churches you've been in or church services you've attended? Are there any of them that particularly stick in your mind as being remarkable? Uh, Well,
1: um, perhaps in terms of numbers, the churches in Korea and the churches in China, quite just... Quite remarkable, and and the many of the churches in China when I went there first of all in 1986 uh, were unheated, and the church depended upon the people to, to heat the church and just body heat, uh, and the churches were packed, and uh, everyone it was it was strong Bible focus, and everyone you know <coughs> those who had a Bible would would take their Bible to church and open it and they would follow the exposition. Uh, I think also of a, of a service, a rather strange service I attended in Thailand at one occasion uh, where the church sought to reflect the tribal context uh, where there was no bread and there was no wine. And they celebrated the Lord's Supper uh, with coconut juice uh, and sticky rice. Now, some people might object to that, but I could understand that given in a context where uh, there was no bread and no wine, which is there's not exclusive to, uh, to tribal uh, peoples in Thailand, uh, that was very interesting, um, functional equivalence, if you like.
0: Absolutely. And Absolutely. also,
1: recent, more recently, I attended the uh, Reformed Church in Jakarta. It's the only church I've ever visited with with a um, with, um, helipad uh, um, and there is a helipad there for uh, people who use a helipad and there was a member of the church who had two helicopters uh, and pilots uh, to run them uh, and that
0: was quite quite remarkable. Yeah I can, think, I can think of a few churches I would want to make a quick escape from after a sermon. <laughs>
1: Um, also, on that occasion, when uh, the last time I was in in, in in Indonesia, I was taken to the, the Christian university and a Christian school. Uh, there's, there's a Christian uh, businessman there who, has, is, his vision is to plant a school in every town, a Christian school in every town in Indonesia. And he's also got uh, a university, a Christian university of 40,000 students. He's got a hospital. Um, and uh, uh, he, took, he took us as, as a group uh, to the school, and he introduced us to the headmaster. And the headmaster introduced himself by saying, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I come from Prince Edward Island, and I'm a member of the Free Church of Scotland. Mm. Wow. Quite, quite extraordinary <laughs> meeting someone from the Free Church in Indonesia.
0: It's a small world. We've been talking a little bit, I mean, this is quite a, a diverse conversation, but we've been talking a little bit about preaching sermons. Uh, reflecting, I mean, I've always enjoyed your preaching. What, what do you think are the marks of a good sermon? Well, I
1: think, first of all, you need a good introduction. You need to capture people's imagination. You can't assume that they're going to listen. And so I think you've got to, you've got to have a good introduction But fundamentally, a sermon is two things. First of all, it's exposition. And it's not for the preacher to say what, uh, give his own ideas. Uh, It's it's for the preacher to expound the text of Scripture. But secondly, uh, the text of Scripture must be applied, contextualized in the lived experience of the people we're speaking to. That's crucially important. Uh, Preaching is not lecturing. Now, I think that in the Reformed tradition, we sometimes make that mistake uh, that we lecture rather than, and I, perhaps looking back to my own ministry in Cumberland, perhaps I did that also, and I didn't apply uh, enough, and I didn't, um, you know, contextualize uh, the, uh, the message. Uh, I think also that um, a good sermon will encourage the congregation to go back to the passage themselves privately, and, it, and engage with it. We talk a lot about scripture engagement in the Bible Society and elsewhere today, and a lot of the focus is on individual, a uh, small group interaction with the text of scripture. But I think preaching should also focus on scripture engagement so that we encourage people to to listen to the text, to engage with the text, and to let the text speak to them and to recognise that that the text is is a historical document, but it's also a, a God speaks today through it, and to listen to the voice of God and have ears to hear, um, I think is is the mark of of good preaching. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Now, the last time I heard you was um, last summer. We were both in a, a rural church in the Highlands, and uh, you preached a really good good sermon. What what struck me was you know, your application there was very specific. I think you were talking about pornography, internet pornography, in your application. Now, that was in a kind of small rural highland church. What does that reveal to you about your philosophy of application? And you hinted perhaps in your early days you wished you'd applied more. Can you maybe un- unpack that for us a little bit? Yes, well,
1: I think that we have to recognise that even in a, in a, in a small uh, rural Place in the Highlands of Scotland, the internet has access. And the community that people live in is not just the physical community, but the online community. And in fact, some people are more involved in an online community than they are in the local community. And one of the things that that I was reflecting on at that time is the number of people I've met, especially young people, who are struggling with pornography. And and this was something that that never occurred in my Christian own pilgrimage, but for many people today, and not only young people but older people too, pornography is you know is 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 a big thing, and um, it's being promoted uh, by you know sometimes sur- surreptitiously um, online. Uh, that's just one, of course, one example of. Uh, of the challenges that that Christians face, um, I think on that particular occasion, if I remember correctly, I was uh, preaching on the on the broken cisterns. Yes, and um, yeah. I think pornography is uh, a broken cistern.
0: There are many others, of course. Yeah, yeah. Again, one of the hallmarks. I mean, you're in your eighties now. I I, I assume, uh, but you oh, well well into them. <laughs> You, you've always stayed current. You always know what, what's going on. How do you do that? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I think that
1: I've always tried to keep in touch, as I've said earlier, with a broad spectrum of Christian belief and Christian activity. Um, and I, I mean, I did this when I very much when I was in school and through Scripture Union. And then a university through interversity, as it was then, UCCF now. Um, and later, you know through um, the Bible Society contacts, uh, through the Lausanne movement, which I learned a great deal from and met many, many interesting people. Um, there's also the former Bible agencies which I helped to bring together, uh, because at one time, Bible agencies, a lot of competition. Uh, and uh, uh, John Bender, the late John Bender Samuel of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I brought people together, uh, and uh, in the Lausanne Conference of Congress in, in in Manila in 1989, um, and uh, we made it our our business to ask a leader from each of the main Bible agencies to lead a session. And at the end of the week, they said, we must do this again. And uh, the Forum of Bible Agencies International was formed and it's still uh, going strong today, in which uh, encourage, uh, sort of, um, uh, not, but encouragement, yes, but, but cooperation in translation and in promotion of Bible advocacy uh, is, is, is advocated and is followed in many cases today. So I think that then there's the World Reform Fellowship, which I'm still a board member of. I've um, met some very key Christians then and through them it was I visited the church with the helipad um, and uh, many other uh, interesting uh, visits and and connections I made.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping to get to the WRF assembly this year. I think it's in Florida. So I'm hoping to That's try right. and, and, and get there. Um, Good. I mean, another thing that strikes me is that you seem also to be committed to lifelong learning. You did a PhD in your 60s, I think. Um, what, what triggered this lifelong learning thing?
1: Well, as far as my PhD was concerned, uh, in the Bible Society, uh, I was concerned by the fact that we were translating and distributing Bibles, and sometimes these were not used. And uh, you had situations in some uh, countries like Nigeria where the Bible was considered to bring good luck, and if you built a new house you would you buried a Bible in the foundation. Mm. Um, and that's not what Bibles are for. Uh, so uh, there are During my time uh, and uh, my my generation in the Bible Society movement, the focus uh, began to include what we call Scripture engagement and helping people to get into the text of Scripture and to listen to what God is saying to them. Um, So when I retired, I wanted to follow that up. uh, And I did an an empirical study Uh, on scripture engagement among a group of mainly non-Christian postgraduate students in Edinburgh University who were interested in spirituality. And uh, I used the Psalms as as the the main text. Um, And they responded very positively. But there were no Damascus Road experiences. There was a lot of pre-evangelism. And most of them moved uh, away from... uh, uh, a transcendence which was within,
0: towards a transcendence which is above. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, I, I want to develop that a little bit. You know, again, I've noted that you, you've you had a fascination and interest uh, with the Psalms. I mean, the the Psalms debate has been weaponized uh, and folk are talking about exclusive psalm and stuff, but that that's not the debate today but can you tell us a little bit about your, your experience with the Psalms and it overlaps a little bit about what you've just been talking about, I mean how powerful are the Psalms as an apologetic tool today Um what do you personally get from the Psalms? Well I personally think that the Psalms
1: are uh, the entry point to the Gospel for many people in our generation. Um, I remember when I was a student, Ari Finlayson, telling us that the Psalms are the autobiography of Jesus. And that is true. Jesus used the Psalms. And when I did my research, I related uh, the particular Psalms that we were looking at, meditating. I used the meditational approach, uh, looking at. I, I related these to the, to edit to places in the New Testament where they were quoted and where Jesus and the apostles used them, um, so I think that along with the four Gospels, the Psalms are a key um, entry point, uh, and I, I strongly feel that that our evangelism today should be to to just to lead people through Scripture if we're, even one to one evangelism why not study uh, or read through a gospel of mark say with someone uh, but at the same time uh, illustrate you know uh, jesus's ministry from some of the psalms that are alluded to there in that gospel or in others
0: It's interesting. I mean, I had Kenneth Ferguson on from Stirling a few weeks ago, and he's been involved with a kind of thing called Immerse, which is reading the Bible in kind of novel form. Um, UCCF and and other folk do, you know, reading the Bible with students, reading the Bible one-to-one. So, you know, it's a bit of a thing now, uh, and yet it's something that you were advocating many years ago. Um, Just touch, I mean, we're nearing the end now. Let's talk about some trends in global mission. You have been a participant and observer in global mission, again probably for you know sixty odd years. Um, what are the changes you've seen in the whole global mission scene? I think the the most fundamental
1: change is the is the dramatic growth of the global church. In the church has multiplied amazingly, and more people have become Christians and your generation, my generation, than any previous generation or all the previous generations together. is quite remarkable. And that's something that we have lost sight of in the Western world where we are we're obsessed with decline. Um, and the decline is very serious and we have to address it. Um, but we should really be encouraged by the fact that the church in Africa and Latin America and in Indian and China has grown uh, so significantly. So I think that's the first um, comment I would make. Um, the second comment uh, I think is that we are now seeing what we might call Samuel Escobar calls missions in reverse. Mm-hmm. We find that these younger churches in Africa, especially are, and China, are sending missionaries to the Western world. And in the city of Glasgow, for example. There are, I think, 200 at least new churches. The great majority of these are African. Yeah. And uh, this is, is, you know, I think a significant movement. And uh, we, I think, should encourage and work with those who've come to us from, from, from the younger churches. Because we need them. Mm-hmm. We need them. And it also demonstrates that Christianity is not cultural, it's universal. It applies to everyone, to every culture.
0: Okay, now you, you, you're in your, your 80s and um, I, I, I guess a cheeky question would be, are you enjoying old age? And maybe touch on what are the dangers and benefits of being uh, in your 80s, a bit older? Um, I think
1: there's a danger of, of complacency. Um I think there's a danger of of being less willing to change, and being more resistant to change. Um, but I think the great benefit is that it gives you perspective as you look back, and um, I think that that I think that is a, a, a great asset um, in in old age. Um, also, reaching people you know, who are of a similar age uh, is, I think, very important. And many of these people, uh, perhaps all of them, you know, know something of the Christian story through Arian school or perhaps even attended Sunday school. And there's more uh, what we might call biblical knowledge there than in succeeding generations. And perhaps we are too slow uh, to take advantage of that and to build on it.
0: Now, my last question would be that if the older Fergus MacDonald were to meet the younger Fergus MacDonald, the, the man in his 80s were to meet the man in his 20s, what, what would, advice would you give to young Fergus?
1: I would say, um, in terms of, of preaching, I, I would say that to encourage the young Fergus, as you call him or them, uh, the importance of liturgy. I mean, we do live in an age of informality. And um, I think, you know, I'm maybe maybe I'm prejudiced, but I think we've gone too far. I mean, I think, you know, to, to lead a service with your hands in your pockets, for example, uh, we wouldn't do that with the, in the presence of the Queen but yet we do it in the presence of Jesus. And um, it's so important that that we cultivate, that we can't, we're dependent on the Holy Spirit here, but we need to cultivate a sense of the presence of God. And uh, when Paul says that uh, an outsider would come into a church in Corinth, he would know that God was there, that God was among them. Um, I think that is, that is, tremendously important. It involves prayer, it involves faith, uh, it's not something uh, automatic. So I think that's um, that's the main thing I think I would say in terms of, uh, of of preaching.
0: Well, to desire and cultivate, as far as it's possible for us, the, the presence of God and, and to desire that is certainly a noble thing. And what, what a great thing uh, to end on. I just want to thank you, Fergus, for giving us your time today, and we do wish you every blessing you, you know, as you continue to minister in different contexts. Thank you for what you've done for the church, not just the Free Church of Scotland, but the wider church. Uh, my generation learned so much from your generation, and we hope that we can pass that that baton on. So, thank you for giving me time today. Well, thanking you for, I uh, thank you for the opportunity. God bless you and your work. Thank you. And thank you to all the Generation Podcast listeners. Again, uh, if you've heard this podcast, tell folk about it, spread the good news. And um, when I first met Fergus, he, one of the other things that always struck me, you love new technology. And uh, you were the first preacher I ever saw using the overhead projector so now you're doing podcasts (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you've seen the whole spectrum Uh, listeners thank you Uh, spread the word spread the the podcast but above all spread the kindness and good news of the Lord Jesus thank you for today